Hey, homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the raza. Yeah. This is for the raza. This is for the raza. Yeah. This is for the raza. Greetings, dysfunctionals. Dr. Ernesto back again with another episode of the Reality Dysfunction. Today, I am once again joined by a panel of experts on the Chicano Latino community who will be hashing it up about the role of essential workers and how these men and women a vast majority of them, Chicano Latino workers, have gone in the short span of two months from being ignored and considered unskilled, low-paid, disposable labor to essential. Yes, this is Francisco. Over the past decade, a huge battle has been waged in our country about the minimum wage in this country and racing it across the bar to $15 an hour. The argument against raising the minimum wage has been that unskilled workers don't deserve to make as much as the rest of us because anyone who could do their jobs. In essence, they are non-essential personnel. However, in the crucible of the COVID-19 crisis, the very definition of essential and non-essential is being debated. Discussed and wage lines are being redrawn. What this means for the future also becomes important as there is little evidence of a quick vaccine and repeated warnings of the virus resurging at regular intervals. The term essential worker takes on a whole scope in terms of demands for worker safety, collective bargaining, and the respect due to our community members who continue to work and keep the rest of us safe. Well, I would just say this. What I think has been really interesting is that even just as, as early as a year ago, the demands, I would say, that were being put on brown people or brown bodies to justify their existence in this society were growing and were extraordinary to the point that we see or we have seen the routine incarceration of families and children under the guise of illegality. I think that's fascinating that how much of that has changed in just a year to the point where you know, when we think about how those brown bodies are, are now being received, right? And the thing that's, that's really kind of crazy is that even though they've gone from being disposable to essential, the true, like, face of it all is still hidden behind this mask that everyone is, is forced to wear. And so I think it's really interesting the way that settler colonialism never allows, right? It never allows indigenous people or the descendants of indigenous people to actually take their place as like heroes in the crisis. You know, Todd, I would ask though, how much of it is people or, you know, the government or whoever companies thinking that, you know, our people are essential or maybe even a continuation of the, that like disposability because like on campus, for example, all of our, you know, cleaning ladies that really keep the University of California going mm-hmm. aren't even being given masks. They're not being protected. They're not, you know, even though they're essential, they're not being given the resources that they need to be able to stay safe. It's because the University of California, the capitalist university, doesn't really care about our brown bodies, right? Same thing with farm workers. They're out there, 50 to 75% of them 
are undocumented. And yeah, they have this letter to have, let them travel, but there are still ICE raids going on. And so how much of this is still a continuation of like, oh, well, y'all can be out there because we don't care really what happens, right? Um, I think that's kind of in the mix as well. I would like to add too that I think it's just part of the system that we work under. Uh, I've got a group of uh, porters and housekeepers at Covenant Hospital. And while they do have, maybe they're not N95 masks, but they have, they have the, uh, the other type of mask, still it's been like pulling teeth even before this to get them paid a, a decent wage. I mean, it was hard to get them, you know, right around $12, let alone $15, which is still above Michigan's minimum wage. And then the only reason we got them a wage even much closer to $15 was because there was simply a labor shortage because there wasn't anyone to do the work. And we were in a position where we could, could negotiate almost a $2 raise and got them real close to $15. But, but it was like pulling teeth. And, and as far as being, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that there was just no one else to do the work, they wouldn't give them any kind of regard, you know, and even now they're just, uh, I mean, there's lip service. They want to make sure, you know, they give them some equipment, but, but they still, I mean, they're just, they're considered dregs almost. Yeah. It's, it's a shame. Yeah. In New York and New Jersey, not until this week, did it become law that you had to provide your workers with protective gear. So for all of, you know, when we talk about essential workers, we're talking about people who are doing the grocery shopping, you know, our custodial janitorial staff, our nurses, farm workers, um, our transit workers, right? Everybody. And, and I feel like people talk about the, our economy economy being shut down, but our economy is still going. We have, a, and we are the ones who are keeping it going. We are feeding. I mean, there was a report the other day that we are feeding America. Our people are feeding this country right now. And, and there was that report about that one meat factory that got, had to shut down because the workers were ill and they were making these people come in without gear, without testing, without sick leave or anything. And it's deplorable. And, and it's how do we, how do we get beyond just talking about being, it being deplorable conditions for our people? I agree. This is Magda Sanchez. I think you bring up a great point, Alex, which is it is, I do not understand why it is okay for the owners of these facilities and companies to reap benefits and profits. No one has any problem with that. But when it comes to basic human rights in providing a living wage and providing the equipment that people need, like masks, et cetera, it becomes this huge problem. And I think we need to demand these things. I think it is critical that we come together as a people or as a group of people and say, we demand a change. You know, company owners should be providing these basic things. For example, I have a, I have a family member who's a chef and they closed down five restaurants that employed a hundred workers each. And so that's 500 people out of work. They're talking about opening up again, but they don't want to provide masks to their chefs and to their, you know, to all the workers there. And I'm thinking, we started thinking, okay, we can do whatever we can to provide just as friends. Like we can provide them with masks. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, these, you know, one of the owners has three freaking houses and he doesn't want to provide masks for his people who is making, barely making a living wage. In Austin, which is incredibly expensive to live in. And so it's just infuriating from that standpoint that 
no one questions the owners of the companies for making profit, but yet they cannot seem to provide a living wage. It reminds me of the Papa John situation in Michigan where, you know, someone put out an ad that showed the owner with his huge mansion and yet his people, he's like, I'm going to shut down if I, if I provide my workers with, with a living wage of $15 an hour. This is Tony Spangler. I work with a lot of workplace technology companies. We work with uh, companies in HR or we work with companies like Fitbit and Lyft and uh, SoFi. One of the companies we work with works ex almost exclusively on compensation management where they collect data on people's salaries, including minimum wage jobs. And one of the things, uh, there's a couple things that the CEO was talking to us about the other day, they're already seeing a slight uptick that is unprovoked by any like state laws around minimum wage. So a lot of job categories where, that we're talking about today that are essential workers, we're starting to see a very small uptick in compensation. And one of the takes on that is that workers are, that have suddenly, companies have suddenly realized that they have quote unquote essential people they're going to get work done. They're going to keep their revenue streams rolling. They're going to have to meet some of their demands. If, if we see what happened with the move by Instacart, you know, it's an online service, you know, not unlike like an Uber or Lyft where the workers have struggled to get, uh, you know, sort of equitable, you know, payer conditions. Uh, it's been a long struggle for them and it's, you know, continues to go on. But we see with Instacart, they got a lot of things, a lot of their demands were met around trying to get better working conditions, you know, some protective equipment and, and so on. And some things are happening and maybe it takes an event like this for people to understand. I yep. think keeping, oh, sorry, this is Daya. Um, I think you bring up an a important point that we should see this as a political opportunity. I think that right now, so many things are up in the air, are changing, that we can make change happen. But we gotta, we gotta stand up and revolt. I mean, at the same time that you're saying that you're seeing some of these things uptick, the federal government is saying, hey, to save the agricultural industry, we should cut farm worker pay. It's like, no, actually, we should be giving them hazard pay because they're on the front lines of this. Um, and so I think that we need to organize around these issues. Um, right now that we have the opportunity to change things. One of the things for me that's been really interesting is, you know, that uh, Leona's at home as like the rest of you have children, you know, they're at home and, you know, you're doing their schoolwork with them and everything. And so I was confronted with this, uh, this social studies packet the other day that had to do with the middle ages, the medieval time or whatever. Right. You know, it was, it was interesting. But I'll tell you, the thing that I read that really shocked me the most was that uh, during that time or around that time was when the uh, Black Plague happened, the bubonic plague, and that the bubonic plague is one of the reasons why the feudal system, like serfs and all of that, came to an end because so many people died, right? that the serfs were finally like, hey, you know what? We don't really want to harvest your crops anymore. And so if you want us to harvest your crops, you're actually going to have to pay us or give it, you know, give us what it is that we want. I think that what Dad just said, and I think it's kind of what's been floating around this conversation, is absolutely true. Now is a moment. I and mean, there's, there's a crisis. It's not just a crisis of a pandemic. There's a crisis of capitalism. 
as like the whole system is being exposed in terms of the ultimate goal of its own selfishness and the sense that even with like Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders, right? Like uh, Sanders has dropped out. Biden is the, the nominee, but he still is like, I don't believe in single payer healthcare. You know, I mean, there's, there's a crisis and there's a crisis I think that we can solve also too by, by getting involved in, in organizing. Yeah, I read that the other day about farm workers. I was astounded by that. How do we, as an extension of that community, many of us who have done work in the fields wouldn't claim farm worker title, but that doesn't mean that I haven't worked on a farm and I haven't done that kind of work, but certainly, you know, my family, and I know that other people on this call, their families too, have worked as farm workers. I mean, how do we allow that to happen, you know, and just not do anything about it? Uh, Francisco here, talking about... uh, the time of opportunity, you know, there is a call for a May 1st general strike growing. There, there's a call. May Day is coming up. What can happen? What can take place through that time? You know, how can, you know, we were talking about how do we, as extensions of this community, how can we help out? You know, and I think that may be our opportunity. For me, what's kind of interesting, what I've been thinking about is how 10 years ago we were talking about too big to fail, companies that were too big to fail. And now we're on the opposite spectrum of that, right? And those companies cannot function without the little person. Here in my city, Mother Valley, I think Amazon is the second largest employer, you know? So a lot, I know a lot of my students, uh, their parents work in some of these centers, right? And how's that gonna impact the, the whole thing? And, and even think about Cesar Chavez Day. Cesar Chavez Day was just March 31st. Did it get celebrated? Was it acknowledged at all? And I think so, some of, those are some of the ways in which uh, we're left in the shadow. Hey, Pete Vargas coming from uh, Lansing, Michigan. Good to see everybody. Uh, yeah, and I, I just want to echo the sentiments uh, that folks have shared that this is a, an organizing opportunity for us uh, all. Um, and it's an opportunity that uh, doesn't see um, you know, race or color or religion uh, as a discrimination. It's a class struggle issue and uh, organizing opportunity. And I know that uh, here in Michigan, and we've been able to, to own the moment in as much as we can. I just shared a, a link with you uh, that has examples of about uh, 70 or 80 organizations that have come together um, from across the state uh, that you would consider, you know, nonprofits, uh, social justice, labor, uh, interfaith justice, on how we can hold our government uh, accountable and our legislators to create uh, not just legislation, but just legislation, right? and doing some of the work for them. In, in other words, if there is an active legislation that folks can be promoting, uh, we, we're working with folks like Sugar Law Center to say, hey, what is some, uh, some language that we could introduce to our legislators that speak to the issues that, that we're finding right now that go above and beyond uh, protecting capitalism, right? But identifying the real engines of the economy, which are the workers themselves, right? Um, I mean, this is not unlike the the Occupy movement, you know, that happened, right? This is like the 2.0 of that. Uh, but at the same time, there's more folks that are coming to the table um, and, and, and forced to speak to each other as well. This is Reiner. I, what I was going to mention is that just today, as I was, uh, before I, I started my grievance, I saw an article in the BBC and I was like, oh, the BBC and the BBC said uh, East European uh, workers or migrant workers being flown into uh, Great Britain to harvest crops. I mean, if you would have looked at the headlines in the BBC and other, you know, worse, you know, the, the 
the Torograph and, you know, other publications they have here, you would have sworn that, uh, you know, that the Eastern Europeans that, that come and, and do their, their picking and, and tending their crops were even worse than, you know, than our worst uh, uh, depictions of uh, folks, you know, from south of our border. It was, but it's just amazing that even today, you know, BBC is singing in, in an entirely different tune because much like, our, you know, you see in the news and our, on our news outlets, you know, they're facing crops, you know, rotting in the fields and on the trees. Also uh, in Detroit, uh, just recently, Pete again, city council for, for the city of Detroit just passed an ordinance to uh, offer $10 an hour raises to all essential workers, which is pretty amazing. You know, when we talk about uh, it being far-fetched for the fight for 15, you know, or even Bernie Sanders or uh, Rashida Tlaib saying, you know, $20 is a good start an hour for, it makes the case, right? It sets precedent to say not only, uh, you know, are they worth that much at, a, at the very bare minimum, but most often essential workers are the lowest paid part of our in industry, right? Uh, when you look at, uh, you know, the bottom third of, of jobs, they are service sector jobs, right? And so uh, we also have to look at, you know, those that are determined to be essential uh, businesses like drive through restaurants, you know, um, then we're also giving power to the corporate owners to decide who is also essential within their, their workforce, right? And I have a dog in the fight. I have two children that are considered essential workers. My daughter is a daycare worker for nurses uh, at Sparrow Hospital, right? Uh, so she's like one degree separation away from first responders and their children, yet is given no PPE, right? Um, and then I have another child who's a back of the house worker at McDonald's, you know, who was also serving, serving food back and forth, also not provided from a corporate store, any personal protection equipment at all as well. So there's, there's issues of uh, who's determined to be an essential worker and uh, during a crisis and also uh, what power are we giving corporate owners to, to say who's considered an essential worker too. I think one of the other things that it really points to, too, it just struck me when you were saying how the Detroit City Council, they were calling for a $10 raise, uh, $10 raise for everybody. It just shows, man, these guys have just been lying all this time about how much they can pay people and what it's going to do to the economy and, you know, all of that. They're just fucking lying, right? And all of us are just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and then the thing is, too, is that... And this is for those of us who, who have gone to college, right? You know, we get this idea in our heads that somehow we're different than the rest of them, you know, or the ones, you know, those ones, right? The ones we came from. You know, we should get paid more. Or we should. Everybody's got to feed their family. Everybody's got to pay rent, right? Everybody's, you know, they're just like basic things that, that have to happen. And... I mean, when they just start jacking up wages because they need you to come to work, uh, that's a flat-out admission of, of guilt, man, of just skin-flinting people over the centuries. And this is Daya. So I think that one of the things that you're alluding to that I've been thinking a lot about is how this has really brought to light a lot of the things that we've been told all our lives that are impossible, that are all of a sudden possible, right? So... I've done some work around criminal justice reform here in California, and this kind of departs a little bit from the essential worker, but it's related in that we've been trying to get, you know, zero cash bail, and um, they're like, oh, you can't do that without risk assessment. There's no way to get it done. 
And then all of a sudden last week, a panel of judges and because they have the support of the sheriff's deputies and, and the corrections officers that don't want to be exposed to this thing, they're like, oh, yep, zero cash bail. If it's a misdemeanor, some felonies, you're not <laughs> coming in here because we don't want to be exposed. So all of a sudden, what we've been told, oh, you can never have happen, it can happen. And so I think this goes along also with some of the opportunities of like, okay, now we know that, I mean, we always knew, I think this group probably always knew we can have Medicare for all, but now we know we can have it, like, and we know that it's possible. And so I think that a lot of the things that we can do is kind of support the movements out there and help them if they need, you know, I don't know, whatever skills we can bring to the table, which sometimes as an academic, I don't even know what those things are anymore. <laughs> but I think that that's one of the roles that we can serve in, in helping organize some of these things that are now that we always knew were possible, but now really are, you know, um, I think at the forefront. And this is Magda. I agree with you completely. I think that this environment and this pandemic is presenting a lot of opportunity to make the changes that we always knew were possible. So I'm in the tech industry and I do work for a behemoth, a giant. What's interesting to me is that change is hard for people. And so for example, I'm working on a project that will enable on-site repair virtually. So instead of having a technician go out, we're, you know, I'm working on a project that would enable video just like we're on right now instead. And it's something that people have been trying to work on for years, but everyone's like, no, 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 it could never work. Well, now it's actually super easy. And I think part of it is that change is hard for people and people love to take on the naysayer role without facts and without data. And so I do think that that's a great, a great opportunity that this pandemic is presenting of, you know, solving these problems is not rocket science. It's making sure that people are presented with facts and, you know, we have to make things work. And so I think there's, there'll be a lot of good and a lot of solutions that can come out of this. So we should take full advantage of this time um, to, to move forward, just as Todd was talking about the Middle Ages and fiefdom and, and moving away from that. I think we should document what types of problems we could solve from this. This is Tony. I, I don't want to introduce a topic that's not germane to our discussion today, but somewhat adjacent to this discussion around essential workers and workers that we all know aren't getting paid what they're worth. The state of our economy is also going to be a major reset around a lot of salary compensation. I mean, it's going to happen across the board. I mean, we're, we're on target right now to hit maybe 20% or more unemployment, like the greatest, the highest level of unemployment since the Great Depression. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to lose jobs. So we've gone from an economy where there were more jobs posted than there were candidates to fill those jobs. All of that's going to drive salaries down across the board. You know, revenues are going to be down. People's salaries are going to be down. When, when companies decide to rehire, they're going to rehire people in at lower rates. What they're going to have a hard time doing is they're going to have a hard time hiring in quote unquote essential workers who are going to be reluctant to put themselves at risk. They are going to have a hard time if this thing lasts much longer or if we get a resurgence of it in the fall. There are going to be a lot of people that are going to they're going to be reluctant to continue to put themselves at that kind of risk. The natural forces will force will cause some of that uh, compensation. Whether it's somebody earlier proposed, you know, hazard pay. That's definitely something that's already in the business world that's being discussed. Is the need to start giving people hazard pay? They're also starting to realize that they can't continue to pay people garbage wages and not just garbage wages, but 
uh, healthcare benefits that don't cover anything. You look at, at brown and black people in, in, in our levels of not just pay, but the type of total compensation generally that our communities get in terms of healthcare coverage, that's part of the equation as well. And then last thing I'll say is, and this may be a topic for another discussion, there is a lot of discussion uh, right now in the HR world about uh, this big economy being a reset. Uh, this might be the golden opportunity for companies that want to do the right thing around pay equity, particularly around gender equity pay, is that they could start moving the benchmarks down for everyone because people are getting pay cuts, people are getting furloughed, people are getting laid off right now. They're going to start hiring people in at lower wages. This is an opportunity for companies to do the right thing in terms of leaving women's pay where it is and naturally bringing down uh, the pay of their male counterparts. And, and it's, a very, it's a very progressive idea in HR circles, but it's something potentially that could happen during this reset is that there's always this claim that we, you know, I, I can't, we just can't bring down somebody's pay. Well, there's natural forces of people being laid off and furloughed and having to be rehired that will, will create a natural opportunity for that. It's also an opportunity for, hey, this is Pete again too, for, for corporate accountability. You know, uh, as much as we have to hold our uh, legislators accountable to having language and, and legislation that supports us, uh, we, we have to like put corporate, uh, you know, accountability at the top of the list. You know, you got folks like Logan Steakhouse, right? That just decided, hey, you know what? I'm not going to furlough my 18,000 employees. I'm just going to fire you and eliminate the opportunity of them having the ability to, uh, one, collect unemployment and two, run COBRA on their health insurance, right? Or, or, or ability to do that, right? And again, well, like, what is, what is going to happen to that six-year or eight-year employee you know, that wants to come back to that, you know, the, their job as well after they've been employees for so long as well. Seniority's thrown out the window, all of that, right? So there's, there's also like what is going to happen when workers can come back to work. Uh, those are also some of the things that we have to think about. Those things are really important. I know that Tony's right. This is going to be one of those moments where companies are going to try to turn it to their advantage, right? I mean, obviously they're going to. There's nothing about our experience in the world that we live in that tells us that's not true. But my point in saying that is this, since we do know that, we have time right now to begin to work in organizations or building organizations that would help to combat that, that will, that will work against it. I think that that's, that's super important. And I also wanted to say um, there was something that, that Dan said earlier when she was talking about bringing uh, like college skills or like, you know, graduate level skills or whatever, not really sure what they, um, what they provide. And, you know, I, I had uh, a very similar sort of crisis myself inside my own head about those types of things. But I always remember this conversation that I had uh, when we were organizing in Detroit at the Chicago Development Center. There was a gentleman who came through there. His name was Lorenzo Kambawa Irving. And uh, Lorenzo um, was a former Black Panther. He was uh, being pursued by the police and he hijacked an airplane to Cuba and then uh, eventually went to Czechoslovakia and had quite uh, an adventure. Um, I don't think it was an extremely pleasant one for him, but finally made his way back to to the United States. And uh, the conversation um, is that basically asked him the same question. But what Lorenzo said to me was the bourgeois skills that you acquire while you're in school, he said, are extremely important to any movement. 
to be able to, to read uh, effectively, to write effectively, to run an office. He said, these are things that all movements need and that they require. He said, so the question isn't the acquisition of the skills, basically. It's what you do with the skills after you acquire them. I mean, for me, that was a profound moment because, you know, here, here was an older gentleman, older African-American gentleman uh, who I respected greatly and who, uh, you know, clearly had put his life on the line for the things that, that he believed in. And, um, you know, I felt very affirmed by that, I guess that's probably the way to put it. But I've also really tried to keep that in mind in thinking about, you know, how I use those, how I use those skills. I think that it's particularly important for those of us, like the, type, the people who are on this call, but the people that we're also associated with, to really think about what that means in terms of the Chicano and Latino community. Uh, specifically, we're a growing population in the United States. We're um, a major population in the United States. And what that really means, though, is that we could very easily uh, get to a position where we can demand power, where we can take power, where we can create power for our community, or we can uh, enter into an apartheid-like situation where we become, um, you know, a major portion of the population that through uh, intergenerational um, and systemic neglect occupy only, you know, the lower tiers of the socioeconomic situation here in the United States. Another topic I've been kind of been going through my mind is, you know, when we talk about essential workers and we're talking about Chicanos, Latinos, Mexicanos, you know, these have also been the communities that have helped other, other cities such as Chicago, Detroit come out of, you know, the LA, you know, really build and become these powerhouses. So I really th see that this could be an opportunity for some of our communities, you know, we're gonna have small businesses, you know, all of those uh, businesses are gonna need that input. And, you know, I'm trying to connect it to your point, uh, Todd, that you were saying, you know, with this gentleman talking about all those skills. So at the same time as being educated, you know, you hopefully you have some financial stability and maybe that's where some of our power and we really need to flex that power buying locally, you know, supporting those companies and trying to stay away from some of those companies, which can be very difficult, but some of those companies that really aren't uh, looking out for the other. Yeah, we see an awful lot of people at the top of the ladder upset when they can't get their groceries delivered to the house, right? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Yes, we, do. we need Just, people at all levels. We need people, accountants and nurses and lawyers and, you know, ev along every rung of the economy, we need to see ourselves represented there. And I think it's really, it's vital, especially in this election year for us to, to create and empower and push forward our political voice and i just think it's really important that we be political at this moment i don't think that we have the luxury of stepping back and letting others say what our needs are we need to be able to say what our needs are i, know, I always go back to todd when a while ago we did the whole proxy narrative and i think about that all the time like who is telling our story and how is that even in today's media how is that being circulated in regards to essential workers and how our communities are being so hit as we are the ones who are being infected the most and we are dying the most, right? And this is about us. So, you know, how are we formalizing? And this, I think this is great. This medium is really important for us to get this message out. 
This is Magda. I, I agree. And honestly, we have to look to ourselves. If we keep looking to mainstream America, it will never get done. Period. End of story. This is just, this is the same as the Chicano movement when a lot of us were in college there in the 90s. You would have thought that there would have been a scholarship set up a long time ago, a Cesar Chavez library collection years before we got there. And there wasn't. And I think we have to take this as an opportunity to unite, just like, you know, the gun violence situation where the youth took control and they made a lot of progress. I think our passion that we have for our community um, should propel that movement and we should look to ourselves because I do think that all of us have learned eons in our 20 plus years of knowing each other, whether it's from life, corporate America, hustling, grad school, whatever life experiences you have, because I do agree that those skills come in incredibly handy. And, you know, I was talking to an attorney, a Latino attorney who happens to be African-American as well. And we were talking about my recent breast cancer situation. He said, if you wouldn't have had the hustling skills and your negotiating skills that you have, you never would have achieved, you know, X, Y, and Z. I got, you know, some things taken care of and noticed some huge gaps in our, you know, medical system and, you know, pharmacy system, et cetera. Without those skills, you know, those are the types of skills that we're going to need to propel this movement forward. So, the, it, so it's on us. Ain't no one to look forward to. Like, we're looking at it right here. Yeah, if I could chime in here real quick. Uh, I'm super excited about 2020 and beyond for some of the work that, we're, that I'm working on here in Michigan. Uh, because, I, you know, Alexandra, you talked about, you know, we need to, to organize ourselves. You also, I think what you're really alluding to as well is we, we need to create a national platform, right, uh, that we can steer people toward. Uh, I know I've been working on it uh, personally, but I like just organizationally, intersectionally, in order to create standards for the different levels of the economy, including corporate America, we have to, we have to define what is acceptable and what isn't. And there is so much low-hanging fruit that, of folks that are like, okay, you know, I, I'm a high road employer. I, I want to be a good employer, you know, and I want to work with other good employers that, and show other folks that, you know, we can build equity uh, across the board, right? I can be a responsible employer and my, my workers will love me for it, right? But we have to define that, right, amongst ourselves and amongst our communities. Uh, and as far as like organizing, we have to learn how to organize. I mean, I'm, I'm super excited, even like on a political level, my job this year is to engage black and brown people in Michigan to vote. That's, that's my job, right? So I'm super excited to be able to learn some new, like get access to a lot of research that traditionally our communities and our organizers don't get access to and try and implement some of those things. I'm hopefully going to be able to share some of those uh, best practices with, with folks that are on this call and uh, moving forward too. Yeah. I think what Francisco said about May Day, I think is super important. And maybe that's something that we collectively talk about and push for, right? And how are each of us in our own networks being able to utilize that to put our message forth? Not to like bring the vibe down. I wanna talk, now that we're talking about politics, I do wanna bring up, cause I'm about to say a dirty word. I'm a millennial and a lot of people my age are really disillusioned with the way that things have gone. And not, I mean, we're, I'm 34 years old and I graduated college in 2008 in the worst like job market that you could have possibly had. And here we are again, when I'm hopefully gonna graduate my PhD in the same exact situation and if not worse. And so 
I think that a, a big sentiment in people my age group is, okay, the Democrats aren't doing it for us. The Republicans definitely ain't doing it for us. And a lot of people my age are not down with voting for Biden. I personally am going to because I, I don't want what we have, but I can't fault them for thinking that way. And I completely understand it. And so how are we going to get through that hurdle? It's important. And their feelings and their sentiments are completely valid because the neoliberal democratic machine has not done anything for us either. So I have one idea. We, we need to organize our own political party again. Yes. <laughs> I think that that's also true, too. And I think that, I mean, yeah, I'm going to vote for Biden, but I don't want to. I, I, I feel violated that I have to vote for Joe Biden, that my choice is between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. I, I think Pete's right. We do. And, 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 you know, I know that lots of times when, when people say that, everybody's all like, oh, you're, you know, stuck in that like 60s Chicano thing, man, and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, no. Actually not, because that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, and I don't think that's what Pete's talking about either. We're not talking about going back in time and building a political party. We're talking about 2019, right? That understands the issues that have been addressed over the last 40 or 50 years of machismo and misogyny and homophobia and all, all of those things, right? Those, those things have been addressed. It is time for people to come together, and I'm not just talking about Chicanos, I'm talking about Latinos across the board, right, to come together and say, look, man, if you guys can't find somebody that works for us, then we'll find our own people. Because we got people that are smart enough to do that, right? Not necessarily Julian Castro, hey. but, you know, I mean, it, but people who can do that, who, who are experts, all of you are experts in the field that you are in. Right. I mean, it's just a matter of scope when you start talking about uh, government and governing and power. I just I just wanted to say this real quick, Joe, that it's uh, 2020 and not 2019. <laughs> <laughs> I've been inside my house for a month straight, man. I don't know what time it is <laughs> or what day it is. <laughs> 20, I'm wishing it was 2019. Dude, 2020 was a, was a really long year, man. <laughs> It's the year that never happened, homie. I mean, if you yeah. think about it, it's the year that never happened. We just sat out the whole year. And so, now they're talking about sitting um, out, doing social distancing till 2022. Like, I don't even yes. know how I'm going to do that. Well, let's, let's do this. I mean, what we need is a marketing plan. And Todd, you're right. This is Magda. A lot of people hear the word Chicano and they shut down. We need to educate our own community on what it really is and what we stand for and what, what it is that we're trying to accomplish because our, our own people don't get it. You know, I have family members who say, oh, we're really proud of our indigenous culture, but we don't want to be Chicano. You know, so we have to solve that problem first. And we also need to figure out what problems we're going to go solve. And then we need a proper marketing campaign to create, you know, get all the social media and figure out how we're going to work with the Hill and all of our people nationally and globally to figure out how we align and, and what problems we're going to go tackle. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want this. This is Tony. I don't want my comment to devolve too much, but having worked in Texas politics, for several years, you know, one of the one of the things that I noted was Texas has a huge evangelical 
population, which is mostly uh, Baptist, which is mostly white. Here's, here's my observation. I think white evangelicals are willing to put their politics ahead of their Christian morals. And I think that Chicanos, especially living in this part of the country, are not willing to put their Catholic faith below their politics. And so, you know, here in Texas, it's sometimes almost 40% of brown people are voting Republican because the Pope's told them they can't vote for for a Democrat. So that's a huge hurdle. I mean, it's a huge cultural hurdle uh, to overcome. You can have the best marketing plan. You can have the best political campaign. You can have the best political candidate. The candidate can be inspiring people. You know, a lot of brown people turned out to vote for Bernie Sanders and got excited about Bernie Sanders in areas like Colorado and a few other states. Not so much here in Texas because so many people of color here are, in, you know, in our community are uh, Catholic and just won't vote against that. So, I mean, that, I mean that's, a, that's a big one to overcome. Um, but it's not insurmountable. And I'll say this, just, uh, you know, I run campaigns for a living too, you know, and we know what the power of 10,000 votes can be in the difference between somebody winning a presidency or not. Um, you know, I mean, that's how it was 10,000 votes in Michigan that lost Michigan, you know, to Trump, right? Even within the capacity of just who's on, you know, in these squares and, the, you know, on my monitor, you know, we would have the opportunity ability to influence 10,000 people just to put it in perspective. Right. And if you were to do that on a national level of even just having the ability to influence 10,000 um, people within individual states, that's power. And I also want to add that there are Christians, there are Catholics who do, who are Democrats or who are liberals. I myself am one and I have many, many family members. I have a huge family on both sides and, and we're out there. And so keep in mind too, that Pope Francis is a progressive. You know, he talks about, you know, LGBTQ equality and not judging people. He calls on people to live their Christian faith and to share their wealth, to forgive debt. And so I hear you, Tony, in saying that a lot of people will will vote Republican just because they're anti-abortion. I get that. I see that. But we also have to recognize that there are liberal, practicing liberal Catholics and Christians, because I'm, I'm friends with a lot of them. Well, and we also, as I am also raised Catholic and have a mother who is super Catholic, our people can do, you know, simple math. And if you point out, you know, okay, yeah, well, maybe um, they do support, you know, abortion, but they also support all these other things that will benefit you. They can do that. And and I've been able to get my mother to, my mother voted for Bernie freaking Sanders. Like I would never, ever would have thought that that was going to happen. But we also have to think about the fact that Catholicism in Latin America is very different than the right-wing Catholicism in the United States. And the Catholicism in Latin America is much more left-wing. And if we bring them back to, you know, their root, we, we have the ability to persuade these voters. So yeah, Magda, Magda and Pete, you bring up a great point. I'm going to make a real fast point. I'll stop talking. I know you have a point you want to make, Todd, is – Look how close Beto came in the state of Texas. Uh, Texas has been a, a deep red state for over 20 years. And Beto came within a percentage point of beating Ted Cruz. Unheard of in Texas, right? And that's a statewide election. But he did it because he knocked on doors. And he, and he, had, a, he, and he had a field operation that was out 
sharing his message and said, look, I want your vote. Here's what I, here's what I stand for. Will you vote for me? And that's the key in politics is that you've got to be able to just get in front of people and say, Hey, here's the candidate I'm behind. I'm just like you. Here's what I care about. Will you vote for the candidate that I'm supporting? And if you just ask people, it's surprising. You just ask people, they'll, they'll vote for someone. But, you know, you're, all this goes back to, I think, points that several of you already made. Francisco, Alex, Todd, just, you know, of organizing and, and, and leveraging our, our talents and represent, you know, and just ask people, you know, tell, tell, share our stories, you know, talk, talk the message and just uh, ask people and say, hey, look, if you're not voting, Here's what I think. Here's what I think is going on. Here's why I think you should vote this way. People just need to be, people need to be asked. Right. And sorry, I got to make this point. So, so this is Magda. I think you're, you make a great point, Tony, in that we've got to knock on doors and take that role and teach people what we're about. I think it's important that Bernie Sanders out of all the candidates involved had the, the greatest Latino engagement. Why? Because he did just what you were talking about, Tony. He knocked on doors. He had the largest field representation of any other candidate. We need to pay attention to that. And they he told his own story. He told that narrative. And I can tell you almost almost every Latino, except for the handful of Republicans, are anti-45. They will, you know, all he had to say on June 14th, a few years ago, was Mexico sends their worst. That one comment actually united a lot of us. And so I, I think that that is a good point and we should control that narrative going forward. That's all we have for today. I wanted to thank all of our expert comrades for coming on to talk about this very important topic of essential workers. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, stay safe and stay inside. The future of employment and wages is certainly uncertain. The question from 2008 remains, who's too big to fail? Companies, communities, individuals who can survive without the other. Maybe it's time for a day without essential workers. Hey homie, I'm getting tired of dudes just getting over on the rasa. This is for the rasa. This is the reality dysfunction.